Section 10 of Sylvie and Bruno Concluded. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Sylvie and Bruno Concluded by Lewis Carroll. Chapter 10 Jabbering and Jam. When the last lady had disappeared, and the earl, taking his place at the head of the table, had issued the military order, "'Gentlemen, close up the ranks, if you please.' And when, in obedience to his command, we had gathered ourselves compactly round him, the pompous man gave a deep sigh of relief, filled his glass to the brim, pushed on the wine, and began one of his favorite orations. "'They are charming, no doubt, charming but very frivolous.' they drag us down so to speak to a lower level they do not all pronouns require antecedent nouns the earl gently inquired pardon me said the pompous man with lofty condescension i had overlooked the noun the ladies we regret their absence yet we console ourselves thought is free with them we are limited to trivial topics art literature politics and so forth one can bear to discuss such paltry matters with a lady but no man in his senses he looked sternly round the table as if defying contradiction ever yet discussed wine with a lady he sipped his glass of port leaned back in his chair and slowly raised it up to his eye so as to look through it at the lamp the vintage my lord he inquired glancing at his host the earl named the date so i had supposed but one likes to be certain the tint is perhaps slightly pale but the body is unquestionable and as for the bouquet ah that magic bouquet how vividly that single word recalled the scene the little beggar boy turning his somersault in the road the sweet little crippled maiden in my arms the mysterious evanescent nursemaid all rushed tumultuously into my mind like the creatures of a dream and through this mental haze there still boomed on like the tolling of a bell the solemn voice of the great connoisseur of wine even his utterances had taken on themselves a strange and dreamlike form. No, he resumed. And why is it, I paused to ask, that in taking up the broken thread of a dialogue, one always begins with this cheerless monosyllable? After much anxious thought, I have come to the conclusion that the object in view is the same as that of a schoolboy, when the sum he is working has got into a hopeless muddle, and when in despair he takes the sponge washes it all out and begins again just in the same way the bewildered orator by the simple process of denying everything that has been hitherto asserted makes a clean sweep of the whole discussion and can start fair with a fresh theory no he resumed there's nothing like cherry jam after all that's what i say not for all qualities an eager little man shrilly interposed for richness of general tone i don't say that it has a rival 
but for delicacy of modulation for what one may call the harmonics of flavor give me good old raspberry jam allow me one word the fat red-faced man quite hoarse with excitement broke into the dialogue it's too important a question to be settled by amateurs i can give you the views of a professional perhaps the most experienced jam taster now living why i've known him fix the age of strawberry jam to a day and we all know what a difficult jam it is to give a date to on a single tasting well i put to him the very question you are discussing his words were cherry jam is best for mere chiaroscuro of flavor raspberry jam lends itself best to those resolved discords that linger so lovingly on the tongue but for rapturous utterness of saccharine perfection it's apricot jam first and the rest nowhere that was well put wasn't it consummately put shrieked the eager little man i know your friend well said the pompous man as a jam taster he has no rival yet i scarcely think but here the discussion became general and his words were lost in a confused medley of names every guest sounding the praises of his own favorite jam at length through the din our host's voice made itself heard let us join the ladies these words seemed to recall me to waking life and i felt sure that for the last few minutes i had relapsed into the eerie state a strange dream i said to myself as we trooped upstairs grown men discussing as seriously as if they were matters of life and death the hopelessly trivial details of mere delicacies that appeal to no higher human function than the nerves of the tongue and palate what a humiliating spectacle such a discussion would be in waking life when on our way to the drawing-room i received from the housekeeper my little friends clad in the daintiest of evening costumes and looking in the flush of expectant delight more radiantly beautiful than i had ever seen them before i felt no shock of surprise but accepted the fact with the same unreasoning apathy with which one meets the events of a dream and was merely conscious of a vague anxiety as to how they would acquit themselves in so novel a scene forgetting that court life in outland was as good training as they could need for society in the more substantial world it would be best i thought to introduce them as soon as possible to some good-natured lady guest and i selected the young lady whose pianoforte playing had been so much talked of i am sure you like children i said may i introduce two little friends of mine this is sylvie and this is bruno the young lady kissed sylvie very graciously she would have done the same for bruno but he hastily drew back out of reach their faces are new to me she said where do you come from my dear i had not anticipated so inconvenient a question and fearing that it might embarrass sylvie i answered for her they come from some distance they are only here just for this one evening how far have you come dear the young lady persisted sylvie looked puzzled a mile or two i think she said doubtfully a mile or three said bruno 
"'You shouldn't say a mile or three. Sylvie corrected him. The young lady nodded approval. "'Sylvie's quite right. It isn't usual to say a mile or three. "'It would be usual if we said it often enough,' said Bruno. It was the young lady's turn to look puzzled now. "'He's very quick for his age,' she murmured. "'You're not more than seven, are you, dear?' she added aloud. "'I'm not so many as that,' said Bruno. "'I'm one. Sylvie's one. Sylvie and me is two. Sylvie taught me to count.' "'Oh, I wasn't counting you, you know,' the young lady laughingly replied. "'Hasn't you learnt to count?' said Bruno. The young lady bit her lip. "'Dear, what embarrassing questions he does ask,' she said in a half-audible aside. "'Bruno, you shouldn't,' Sylvie said reprovingly. "'Shouldn't what?' said Bruno. "'You shouldn't ask that sort of questions.' "'What sort of questions?' Bruno mischievously persisted. "'What she told you not?' Sylvie replied, with a shy glance at the young lady, and losing all sense of grammar in her confusion. "'Oo can't pronounce it!' Bruno triumphantly cried, and he turned to the young lady for sympathy in his victory. "'I knew'd she couldn't pronounce umbrella-sting!' The young lady thought it best to return to the arithmetical problem. "'When I asked if you were seven, you know,' I didn't mean how many children. I meant how many years. Only got two ears, said Bruno. Nobody's got seven ears. And you belong to this little girl, the young lady continued, skillfully evading the anatomical problem. No, I doesn't belong to her, said Bruno. Sylvie belongs to me. And he clasped his arms round her as he added, she are my very mine. And do you know, said the young lady, I've a little sister at home exactly like your sister. I'm sure they'd love each other. They'd be extremely useful to each other, Bruno said thoughtfully, and they wouldn't want no looking-glasses to brush their hair with. Why not, my child? Why, each one would do for the other one's looking-glass, of course, cried Bruno. But here Lady Muriel, who had been standing by listening to this bewildering dialogue, interrupted it to ask if the young lady would favor us with some music, and the children followed their new friend to the piano. Arthur came and sat down by me. If rumor speaks truly, he whispered, we are to have a real treat. And then, amid a breathless silence, the performance began. She was one of those players whom society talks of as brilliant, and she dashed into the loveliest of Haydn's symphonies in a style that was clearly the outcome of years of patient study under the best masters. At first it seemed to be the perfection of pianoforte playing, but in a few minutes I began to ask myself wearily, what is it that is wanting? Why does one get no pleasure from it? Then I set myself to listen intently to every note, and the mystery explained itself. There was an almost perfect mechanical correctness, and there was nothing else. False notes, of course, did not occur, 
she knew the piece too well for that but there was just enough irregularity of time to betray that the player had no real ear for music just enough inarticulateness in the more elaborate passages to show that she did not think her audience worth taking real pains for just enough mechanical monotony of accent to take all soul out of the heavenly modulations she was profaning in short it was simply irritating and when she had rattled off the finale and had struck the final chord as if the instrument being now done with it didn't matter how many wires she broke i could not even affect to join in the stereotyped oh thank you which was chorused around me lady muriel joined us for a moment isn't it beautiful she whispered to arthur with a mischievous smile no it isn't said arthur but the gentle sweetness of his face quite neutralized the apparent rudeness of the reply such execution you know she persisted that's what she deserves arthur doggedly replied but people are so prejudiced against capital now you're beginning to talk nonsense lady muriel cried but you do like music don't you you said so just now do i like music the doctor repeated softly to himself my dear lady muriel there is music and music your question is painfully vague you might as well ask do you like people lady muriel bit her lip frowned and stamped with one tiny foot as a dramatic representation of ill-temper it was distinctly not a success however it took in one of her audience and bruno hastened to interpose as peacemaker in a rising quarrel with the remark i likes peoples arthur laid a loving hand on the little curly head what all peoples he inquired not all peoples bruno explained only but sylvie and lady muriel and him pointing to the earl and oo and oo you shouldn't point at people said sylvie it's very rude in bruno's world i said there are only four people worth mentioning in bruno's world lady muriel repeated thoughtfully a bright and flowery world where the grass is always green where the breezes always blow softly and the rain clouds never gather where there are no wild beasts and no deserts there must be deserts arthur decisively remarked at least if it was my ideal world but what possible use is there in a desert said lady muriel surely you would have no wilderness in your ideal world arthur smiled but indeed i would he said a wilderness would be far more necessary than a railway and far more conducive to general happiness than church bells but what would you use it for to practice music in he replied all the young ladies that have no ear for music but insist on learning it should be conveyed every morning two or three miles into the wilderness there each would find a comfortable room provided for her and also a cheap second-hand pianoforte on which she might play for hours without adding one needless pang to the sum of human misery lady muriel glanced round in alarm 
lest these barbarous sentiments should be overheard. But the fair musician was at a safe distance. "'At any rate, you must allow that she's a sweet girl,' she resumed. "'Oh, certainly. As sweet as eau sucre, if you choose, and nearly as interesting.' "'You are incorrigible,' said Lady Muriel, and turned to me. "'I hope you found Mrs. Mills an interesting companion.' "'Oh, that's her name, is it?' I said. "'I fancied there was more of it.' "'So there is, and it will be, at your proper peril, whatever that may mean, if you ever presume to address her as Mrs. Mills. She is Mrs. Ernest Atkinson Mills.' "'She is one of those would-be grandees,' said Arthur, "'who think that, by tacking on to their surname all their spare Christian names, with hyphens between, they can give it an aristocratic flavor, as if it wasn't trouble enough to remember one surname. By this time the room was getting crowded, as the guests invited for the evening party were beginning to arrive, and Lady Muriel had to devote herself to the task of welcoming them, which she did with the sweetest grace imaginable. Sylvie and Bruno stood by her, deeply interested in the process. "'I hope you like my friends,' she said to them. "'especially my dear old friend, mein Herr. "'What's become of him, I wonder? "'Oh, there he is, that old gentleman in spectacles with a long beard.' "'He's a grand old gentleman,' Sylvie said, "'gazing admiringly at mein Herr, "'who had settled down in a corner "'from which his mild eyes beamed on us "'through a gigantic pair of spectacles. "'And what a lovely beard!' "'What does he call himself?' Bruno whispered. "'He calls himself mein Herr,' Sylvie whispered in reply. Bruno shook his head impatiently. "'That's what he calls his hair, not his self, oo silly.' He appealed to me. "'What does he call his self, Mr. Sir?' "'That's the only name I know of,' I said. "'But he looks very lonely. Don't you pity his grey hairs?' "'I pities his self,' said Bruno, still harping on the misnomer. "'but I doosn't pity his hair one bit. "'His hair can't feel.' "'We met him this afternoon,' said Sylvie. "'We'd been to see Nero, "'and we'd had such fun with him, "'making him invisible again, "'and we saw that nice old gentleman as we came back.' "'Well, let's go and talk to him "'and cheer him up a little,' I said, "'and perhaps we shall find out what he calls himself.' End of chapter 10